So today we finish up chapter 2 of the book of Hosea. So turn with me to Hosea chapter 2. We'll be in verses 14 to 23. Hosea chapter 2, and we'll start with verse 14 uh, today. Do you remember the place where you first fell in love? Do you remember the place where you first fell in love? Where were you? What were you doing at the time? What was the context to that? Who were you with? And in asking that question, I understand it may not be the person you're with now. Right? The, our first love may not have been where we are now. It's the love that lasts that truly matters. But who was it over? There's a story of one couple who found love in all places in a desert. Of all the places in the world, they found it in a desert. Not the place where you go to when you think of love. right? Normally, it's some kind of uh, tropical paradise or some other such place where maybe two people find love. But it was in a desert. Uh, the woman was enslaved to a terrible master. And this master was harsh towards her. He wouldn't let her go out of uh, his sight for anything. And he demanded more work from her than she could ever give, than she could ever do. And when she failed to complete the work that was assigned to her, she was punished. There's one. There was someone who saw her and took pity on her. He saw her deplorable condition and he said, I have to intervene. The master was enraged at this interloper, but he could do nothing to stop him or, or to, uh, to dissuade him. So the master did what only the master could do, which was make life more difficult for the woman. And so he did. He made the job, jobs harder and didn't give her what she needed to complete those jobs so that way she would fail and then he would get his punishment out. But again, the other would not be stopped. He wouldn't let the injustice carry on any further. And so he moved heaven and earth to free this woman. He led the woman out in power and fierce might to the great loss of her master in more ways than one. And after escaping the master, they went out into the desert wilderness. And there this redeemer spoke words of tender love to her. And they made a covenant with one another. And he gave to her many blessings. The woman was dazzled for a time. Uh, but even in the midst of that moment, in the tender love that they shared, she kept having thoughts of what she left. She kept thinking back and saying, Oh, remember the days. Even longing for it. And over time, she even forgot the one who rescued her. And she had become enticed by others who promised the world to her. And this is the story of God and his people, Israel. God loved his people fiercely and rescued them from the hands of Pharaoh through much might and power. And indeed, heaven and earth were moved to redeem her. And this story intersects with our passage today in the book of Hosea. Hosea comes and preaches to a people who have left their first love. Today, I want us to see in our passage that God will woo his people unto faithfulness. God will woo his people unto faithfulness. So let us read the word this morning out of the book of Hosea, chapter 2, starting in verse 14. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. And bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. 
and no longer will you call me my ball. For I will remove the names of the balls from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil. And they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. And this is the word of the Lord. We come to our passage today on the heels of a promise of destruction and deprivation, right? If we go back to verses 11 to 13, even of chapter 2 here, uh, starting in verse 11, and I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the balls, which she burned offerings to them, and adorned herself with a ring and jewelry, and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Right. So, so immediately before this passage, we have an accusation made against the people that they have been unfaithful, and that God will judge them for it. God will bring justice. They have erred, they have sinned, and God will punish them. He will put to an end. He will lay waste. God promises there that the waywardness of the people of Israel will not be overlooked. God does not overlook sin. He deals with it. His justice and character demand it. And as we look to our passage today, we might expect more of the same, right? As we come to it, we may expect that God's going to continue accusation and uh, announcement of punishment. But instead we have a, a reversal in our passage. And so let's get into the passage proper today and see first removing names, removing names. And that's verses 14 to 17, removing names. This passage in some sense, seems out of place because uh, verse 14 starts out, therefore, and as we know, if we've been around long enough in church uh, church life, right, we, therefore means, what is it there for, right? We ask that question. It's a, it's a matter of logic, right? There's, there's logical argument going on, and therefore tells us a, a summary of what is to come because of the therefore, what has happened before, will lead to something. And instead of what we might expect here, what do we know is therefore? What is it therefore? Well, beforehand we have accusation that they've been following after false gods, accusation that they have been wayward, that they've been unfaithful, that they have been adulterous. And God promises punishment, removal of his blessings. And then he says, therefore, look, and we expect more judgment. We expect more punishment. And instead, God says to the people of Israel, therefore, I will allure her. Therefore, is a statement of divine justice. But in this case, it's not punishment but restoration in promise and in view. And God says he's going to attract his wayward wife to himself. He's going to do it in two ways, right? How is he going to do that? Uh, we see at the end of verse 14, two ways that it gives us. The first is that he's going to bring her to the wilderness, bring her to the wilderness. And this opens, uh, this goes back to the opening story of love. This goes back to the the wilderness where God first established his covenant with his people, 
right? It's in the wilderness of the desert that he showed his steadfast love towards his people. He appeared to them in the wilderness. He gave them manna in the wilderness. He made water flow from the walk, the, the rock, not the walk. That's something you cook uh, some Asian meals on. There you go. He, he gave over and over again blessings unto the people of Israel in the wilderness, in verse 15, makes clear that that's what the allusion is, is to, right? At the end of verse 15, at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. Right? So, so what is in view? What God is saying is, I'm going to take her back. Moses reminds the people in the book of Deuteronomy about the way in which God had dealt with his people in the wilderness. Deuteronomy 29, verses 5 and 6. Deuteronomy 29, 5 and 6. Moses says, I have led you 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out on you. Your sandals have not worn off your feet. You have not eaten bread and you have not drunk wine or strong drink that you may know that I'm the Lord your God. Right? Moses says, this is the purpose of God. Your clothes haven't worn out. Your sandals haven't fallen off your feet. You've eaten bread. You've drank water, not strong wine. That you may know that I am the Lord your God. And I would just point out there that if you look at the context of that passage, it's Moses is chastising the people, not in, in one way. Admonishing, I would say, is probably the better way. He's warning them because right before he says that, uh, verse 4 of Deuteronomy 29 says, but to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. It's kind of a sad state of affairs for the people of Israel because they don't see, they don't understand. And yet God has loved his people fiercely. He's been steadfast in his love toward them. And if we know anything about the wilderness wanderings, that it was just that there was lots of wandering for the people. But God says, I want to I want to take you to a time when you were more faithful, because relatively the people were more faithful when they were in the wilderness, deprived in the wilderness than they were in the benefits and the blessings of the promised land. And so God says, I'm going to take you back to a time when you were more faithful and I'm going to speak tenderly to her. Right. That's the second thing he says, I'm going to lure her, bring her into the wilderness and I'm going to speak tenderly to her. Rather than speak harshly in that day, God says he's going to speak words of tender love and affection. And we can say that much of the words so far in the book of Hosea, and as we continue to go through it, we'll see there are some harsh words for the people of Israel. So it's not as though God isn't, God's just going to say, oh, it's all going to be lovey-dovey and I'm never going to have a harsh word for you. No, because the people, what they're, what they're hearing right now, what they're getting right now are harsh words. But there is coming a day when God will speak tenderly to his people. Right? God doesn't hold back the truth of what his people are doing. Right? He's, he's called them adulterers. God doesn't shy away from the curses that he is going to bring upon them for their waywardness. So we have to understand that when is this going to happen? It's not now in Hosea's time. But it's in that day. It's in a future day to come. Not soon. Because what is soon is judgment. What is soon is what God has promised. Exile, destruction, deprivation, denial. Uh, the net version of the, the net translation makes clear this eschatological future. Uh, it reads this way. However, in the future, I will allure her. I will lead her back into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. Right, so this is something in the future. We have to understand that there's two time frames in which Hosea is dealing with. There's the immediate time frame, which is a time frame of judgment and punishment. But there's a future time frame to come. One of alluring. Verse 15 continues, he says, And there I will give her her vineyards. Right, Her vineyards, the ones that God had promised to destroy with beast and forest. God's going to give them back to her. He will give the things he has removed and there he will make 
the valley of Achor, a door of hope. And now, if you know your Old Testament trivia, I'll give you a second to think about it. Where does the valley of Achor show up? Where Achan was cursed. Yes, exactly, where Achan was cursed. Now, if you used your cross-references, you probably saw that too. But this comes from Joshua 7. So turn with me for a moment to Joshua 7, because we're going to look a little bit at that story to get a context of what of what Hosea is, is referencing. And I would just point out here as well, Hosea references a lot of what's earlier in the Old Testament. So we have a lot from the book of Deuteronomy and judgments uh, and curses and blessings. <coughs> We have a lot to the Mosaic law, and we have even here this story in the book of Joshua. So we need to know our Old Testament to come to to Hosea. There's lots of cross-references. But Joshua 7, uh, this is the story. uh, And if you remember, just to kind of situate ourselves in the book of Joshua, uh, Joshua is tasked with taking the people into the promised land and conquering it. And this is what he he is tasked to. This is what God has uh, set before him, and God is going with him. And kind of immediately before this story, we have the story of the, of, of the victory of Israel that they experienced in the defeat of Jericho. And how did the people defeat Jericho? Did they go out there with their big war machines and say, look at we've got a bigger army than you? No, they brought out their brass band and walked around the city, and the walls fell, and they conquered the city, right? So this is what has happened immediately before. The people are probably on a high right now, right? They're on the high of victory. And then they set forth to conquer the city. That's next in line, the people of Ai. God promises to be with his people as they conquest. He had promised them victory wherever they went, except when they go to defeat the city of Ai, They lose, and some of them even die. And so they lament, they mourn, and Joshua laments before the Lord, and he prays to God, and God responds in verses uh, 10 and following, and I just want us to look at 10 through 12. Verse 10, the Lord said to Joshua, Get up! Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things they have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. In a case... Joshua missed it the first time and just the start of verse 13 there. Get up. Consecrate yourselves and the people. Right? So Joshua laments and God responds. God reveals to them the source of the trouble. We see that further on uh, as we continue the narrative. But I want us to jump down to verse 24 and see how the people respond to it. The people deal with the seriousness of the crime. The crime is that the people have taken something that is the Lord's. They have lied about it. They have hidden it. They have been selfish, greedy. Verse 24. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan the son of Zerah and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring this trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stone that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor, which is the Valley of Trouble. And so we jump back to Hosea and we say, what's going on? What is Hosea? What is he trying to do? What is his purpose in saying this? Well, we'll think about the context, right? This is just after their entry into the promised land. They've been in the wilderness. And God has spoken tenderly to the people. And as they get into the the promised land, they approach the valley of trouble. 
a valley of unfaithfulness, a valley of punishment, a valley of lament. And God says through the prophet Hosea, I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. What was once trouble and unfaithfulness has become a place of hope and a place of faithfulness. That God is undoing what has gone wrong. So even from the very outset of the people, right? The very outset of the people, there was greedy unfaithfulness. And there's a lot of probably parallels to Hosea's own day where he sees around himself greedy unfaithfulness. And God says, no longer, no longer the valley of trouble, now a door of hope. There's also another interesting connection here. One commentator points out that that the Hebrew root for hope here is a homonym for the word cord. And what significance could this have? Well, earlier in the book of Joshua, we have a prostitute. And she survives the destruction of Jericho, her and her family, because she ties a scarlet cord to the window where she had let down the spies of the people of Israel. She, because of her fear of the Lord and her faithfulness to her word, doesn't reveal the spies and so ties the cord to the window. Prostitutes can have hope. So I think maybe Hosea here is wanting us to make these connections and say, how do we know it's a door of hope? How do we know that the Valley of Achor can be a door of hope? Because other prostitutes have had hope as well. They have been redeemed by the Lord because of their fear of the Lord. And let us not forget that she uh, likely shows up in the lineage of Jesus. For this prostituting people, there can be hope for restoration. Verse 16 continues by saying, And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer call me my ball. In that day, God promises that the people will no longer speak the names of the false gods. They will instead only speak the name of the one true and living God. They will call God Ishi or husband, and they will never call out ball, which can also mean master or Lord. And again, here we have to uh, go into the language a little bit to understand what God is saying. Because the word ball can have a range of meanings. It can mean something generic. So, So it can mean something like master or lord or even husband. So it has these kind of range of meanings. But it also has that very particular meaning, especially in the land of Canaan, because it is a proper name. It is the name of false gods. And there was more than one ball, but if we just take them and lump them all, all in one, this is probably the reference to which it is. Like, so, so he's saying, you're no longer going to call out my ball. And there is, it's possible, it's not provable, but it's possible that maybe the people of Israel, the people of the northern kingdom, use the term ball in reference to worship of God to say, because it could mean Lord. So in other words, they were speaking out of both sides of the mouth, and we want to use that cliche to understand it, right? They are talking uh, in, a, in a double way. They're using double speak. Because in the one time they, they're, uh, they may be approaching right worship of God, right? Because we know they celebrated Sabbaths. That's earlier. So maybe on the Sabbath they say, Oh, Baal, bless our day today. And they say, well, I mean Lord by that. I don't mean the false God, but in their hearts, they say, I do mean the false God, right? So, so they're using that language uh, dually. We can't prove that, but it is possible. And God says, no longer, no longer will you call me my ball. Instead, you're going to call me Ishi. God will remove the names of balls from her mouth, verse 17, and they shall be remembered by name no more. The word is going to drop out of their lexicon. 
The word is going to drop out of their use of the language. The culture is going to forget it. The, the use of the word, whether legitimate or illegitimate, it's going to stop. It will be no more. God will remove it. And the significance of that word ishi or husband shouldn't be lost on us. Because what does the very beginning of, of chapter 2 tell us? Chapter 2, verse 2. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife. And what? And I am not her husband. I am not her husband. And yet God says here, he's going to reverse that because they are going to call out to him as husband. God started out this chapter with the declaration that he was not their husband, but now here he promises again that they will once more call him husband. And it is in this coming age that this thought of any idea, any thought, any inkling of false worship, of false gods, will be utterly removed from the minds of the people. They will have a new heart and a new mind, one that worships God alone. And let's continue in our passage and see God making covenants, making covenants in verses 18 through 20, making covenants. And I will make for them a covenant on that day. Right. When when is that day? Not in Hosea's time. In Hosea's time, there is promise of destruction. But on that day in the the future. He will. Make covenants with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the creeping things of the ground. So the animal kingdom. And also he will abolish the bow, the bow, the sword and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. So the the human kingdom, both animal kingdom and human kingdom are going to be at peace with the people of God. Ezekiel describes it in like terms in Ezekiel 34 Verse 25, Ezekiel 34, 25, And I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. They'll be able to get their little sleeping bag and go out into the woods and enjoy a good time without having to worry about uh, mountain lion, boar, or any other dreadful beast in the night to come and to uh, accost them. And I will betroth you to me forever. Verse 19 says, God again uses this language of marriage. And when he says betroth there, he's talking about a bride price. He's paying the bride price. And this is marriage. It's a, it's a, a short way of saying, I will marry you. So it's not as though they're just getting engaged, right? We, we have it differently in our culture. When we get engaged, we can be unengaged. And not have to go through any court action. But in the people, for the people of Israel, a betrothal was as good as marriage. It's, it's a, it's a shorthand that Hosea is using here. And just for that reference, we could look, we see that even in the New Testament, Joseph was going to give Mary a certificate of divorce, even though they were just betrothed to one another, right? So, so it's something we see even into the New Testament. But God uses the language of marriage. And what is in view with this betrothal is the paying of the bride price. And here I want us to, to, to in our passage here, stop. And we really need to consider these promises of God. Uh, deal with the reality of the promises of God to the people of Israel and the promises of God to the church, the people of God today. How are we to understand these promises that are yet as yet unfulfilled? Right? This hasn't happened yet because God says, I will betroth you to me forever. Are the people, uh, are ethnic Israel forever the Lord's? Do we see that? Do we see faithfulness and fidelity to God alone? Do we see them obeying the commands of God? I'd say it'd be hard for them to do because they don't have a temple to do it in, right? So if we, if we take that, but how are we to understand this? There are a variety of, of opinions about these unfulfilled promises made to the people. 
Some tend to see the purpose of God towards his people in a bifurcated manner, meaning that there are two, two separate, two distinct peoples. There are the people of Israel, which are God's earthly people. There are the church, which are a, a kind of spiritual people. And that these two uh, people are distinct and separate and they don't join up together. And so when we see promises in the Old Testament that are made to the people of Israel, we're talking about promises made to ethnic Israel. And when we see in the New Testament promises made to the church, well, that is for the church. It's not for Israel, and Israel's not for the church. Right? So we see that there are two distinct people. Others, however, argue that the promises of God to his people are always to his people, whoever they are and wherever they are. And what I mean by that is that these promises of God are not merely fulfilled in a future people made up of ethnic Israel, but of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. God fulfills and will fulfill in the new covenant made through Christ Jesus what was first promised to Israel. And there are still others who say that there is now no distinct earthly people of God. In other words, the special nature of ethnic Israel is revoked by God's work in the new covenant of Christ, the church has replaced the people of Israel in every way. So, right, we, do we understand kind of those categories of distinction? This is how we understand the promises in the Old Testament and the promises in the New Testament. As for myself, I would land in that second option. The true people of God are those who are, by faith, believe in Christ Jesus. And they're made up of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation whether Gentile or Jew. Uh, Romans 1.16 says, Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And understand that one of the threads that runs through the book of Hosea is that those who are ethnic Israelites, God declares to be not my people. Right. Well, God, in essence, says to the people of Israel in the northern kingdom, he says, you claim to be my people by virtue of genealogy, that that is your right to be my people. And, and you are heirs to the promise because you're Israelites. Well, guess what? You're not my people and I'm not your God. So quit saying it. Quit believing it because it ain't happening. It ain't true. So just being born ethnic Israelite doesn't make you an Israelite in a de facto way. And there are people in Hosea's day who are faithful to God. Hosea is one of them, right? Hosea is preaching here. He's one of them. And to them belong the promises. In the days of Jesus, did the gospel message come to the Jews first or to the Gentiles first? Who were the first believers? We would be remiss if we think that God has no care for his people, ethnic Israel. Paul writes as much. Romans 11, verse 1. Romans 11, verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. So what is all this discussion? What is this question of theology and doctrine have to do with our passage here in Hosea? Well, my question to you, brothers and sisters, is what do you take from this passage? There are those who would say, well, you don't take anything personally from this passage. It's not to you. I disagree. This is a passage for the promise, the promises of God to his people. And if you are in Christ, this is this is for you. This is the promise of God for you. He will betroth you to himself forever. And there is fulfillment of this promise in the work of Christ Jesus. Because what did Christ Jesus come to do? To purchase for himself a people for his own possession. He paid for her with his own blood. He, he paid a bride price for you, brothers and sisters. The church is the bride of Christ. Right? That's, one of the, uh, that's one of the metaphors that Paul uses to understand our relationship to Christ. And if you are in Christ... You are Christ forever. You will never be lost from Christ. But even as that is true today for you, there is also yet another day coming of greater fulfillment. 
There's coming a day when Christ Jesus will be presented with his bride, the church. Paul writes to the Corinthians in this manner in 2 Corinthians 11.2. 2 Corinthians 11.2. For I fulfill a divine jealousy for you. Listen to Paul's words, 2 Corinthians 11.2. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Why does Paul care about the Corinthian church? Because he betrothed them to Christ Jesus, and he wants to present the church as a pure virgin. There's similar language about that mystery. Uh, Paul writes to the Ephesians, right? Ephesians 5, popular passage for us. It's not as though it's unknown to us, perhaps. But Ephesians 5, 29 to 32. Ephesians 5, 29 to 32. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So marriage, the the marital covenant, and what a husband bears towards his wife, and what a wife bears to her husband, is a picture, is a portrait of Christ and his people. It's marriage. What kind of marriage will this be? What kind of relationship will there be between Christ and his church? In other words, what what, what kind of relationship will you have between Christ and you? And we come to our passage here, and I think we, we get a picture of this. So God says to his people, I will betroth you to me forever. And what will he do? I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. Verse 20, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. So let's go through this and and see. So what is God going to do? He's going to betroth you to me in righteousness. And righteousness, meaning salvation, the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. Again, 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Justice, he's going to betroth us to him in justice or in judgment. Equity, God is forever fair. The book of Revelation tells us that the new heavens and the new earth will be sin-free. Revelation 21-27, Revelation 21-27, but nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. There is coming a day when we will act in justice forever. Steadfast love. He will betroth us to him in steadfast love, loving kindness. God's love will never fade or falter. And our love for him will be likewise. The false gods will be forgotten. And brothers and sisters in Christ, understand this. There is coming a day when all the sins you struggle with will be no more. There is coming a day when the things that you now bow down to in worship, though you know you ought not, the false idols that you set up, and though you repent of such things, will be but a distant memory never to be recovered. The covenant relationship between you and God will never be shaken because it is built on steadfast love. Then he says, I will, I will bind you, I will betroth you to me in mercy or compassion, pity. God will bring to bear all his goodness towards us, his creatures. Verse 20, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And this is really the crux of the issue in the book of Hosea, right? Because what is what is the problem with the northern kingdom of Israel? They're unfaithful. And in this coming day, there will never be any unfaithfulness. God is utterly reliable to his word, and we will be too. 
And then at the end there, he says, and you shall know me. You shall know the Lord. In other words, and this is metaphorically speaking, there will be a consummation of this marriage. This, there will be an intimate knowledge of God and of us shared in that relationship. It will be as in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4. Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. So to go back briefly to that question of what do we do with the promises of God here in Hosea, we understand them to be fulfilled in Christ Jesus in part for us today, and we hope that as we look forward to with the certainty that we know that God is faithful to the day when they will be fulfilled in full. God will banish death. He will subdue sin. And Satan will be cast forever out along with all who follow him. God's people, both Jew and Gentile, will live in his holy presence as his holy people. Or to say it in the terms of the book of Hosea, chapter 1, verse 10. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And finally, let's see in our passage, God sowing growth. God sowing growth in verses 21 through 23. And in that day, again, in that future day, in the coming age, what will God do? Well, he will answer the prayers of his people. He will answer the prayers of his people. He will respond to them. Or as the KJV says, he will hear the prayers of his people and so act. What will he do? Well, we have here the reversal of that promise of destruction of the people, right? The people were going to be deprived of all the blessings of the land. And here God says, you're going to have the blessings of the land again. He says... In that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. And what we what, what seems to be depicted here, right, is an agricultural cycle. God's going to say, heavens rain, and the earth's going to receive the rain. What happens when the earth receives the rain? Things grow. The grain, the wine, the oil. And they shall answer Jezreel. And here's that name again that we've seen a few times now as we've gone through. What does this mean? God sows. And what does God sow? And I will sow her for myself in the land. It seems to be that God is saying, I'm going to put the people back into the promised land. And isn't that what we see in the book of Revelation? The new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem coming down out of heaven in Onto the land. And the land will be forever God's people's. Right? God's people will bring in the, the blessings of the land into the new city. God will sow his people into the land of promise. And to those who he said no mercy, he will have mercy. To those not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. God will woo his people back to himself. He will, in love, allure them. He will take them back to be what they, uh, when they were first truly became his people, to rekindle the flame of first love. He will do this out of his steadfast love and compassion, out of his faithfulness to covenant promises. And though the people had wandered and they would have to go through much tribulation, and consider also what that means, right? If this is a future promise for future uh, a people who are not those in Hosea's day, that means that there are those who perish in Hosea's day without ever seeing the promise. And maybe they perish in such a way as to never experience the blessings, right? As in they did not hear Hosea's message. They did not turn to the Lord in fear. And so they were lost. 
But just because he was going to bring them through tribulation does not mean that he had abandoned his promise, his covenant promise that he had made to Abraham. Friend, God has made a new covenant and he has made good his promises and he will fulfill all that he has promised to his people. Included in this is not just the Israelites, but all God's people, both Jew and non-Jew alike. But the promises of the new covenant, the promises of a new creation, a new heaven and a new earth unstained by sin are only for his people. Those whom he has purchased by Christ's blood, those who acknowledge him. So do not take the meaning of the message of Hosea to say that everything will be all right for you. This message is for God's people and them alone. How then do you become one of God's people? Well, Paul tells us it's, it's an adoption. Uh, Romans 8, 14 to 17. Romans 8, 14 to 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with him, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Those who have received the Spirit of God have become the children of God, one of God's people. All who are born of the Spirit of God are born into a new kingdom. And if we are in that kingdom, if we are part of that family, we can expect the blessings, the glories, and the goodness of God to be ours. And this is why Christ Jesus came. Jesus did all that was necessary to secure his people. He did all the work necessary for people to be able to stand before God as holy, blameless, and above reproach. He lived a holy and perfect life doing all God commanded. And he went to the cross to die in the place of sinners. He bore the wrath of God that his people would not have to. He bore the judgment due wicked sinners. And in all this, this is the love of God. God, the Son, did all this in love. He did this to allure a people to himself, that those who are his might be his and his only forever. When Christ Jesus raised from the grave, he defeated death and sin. And one day when Christ returns, we will find the promises made here in Hosea that are yet unfulfilled be fulfilled in full. Christ Jesus will be presented with his bride, the church, the people of God. And in that day, Hosea 2, 19 to 20, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. And you can be part of the people of God. And it is through faith that that is possible. By trusting in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, by confessing your sins and turning from them, repenting of them, God has done all that is required for salvation. Call out to him today in faith. And brothers and sisters in Christ, what a blessed day that will be when we will be joined with our God forever. There is coming a day, beloved, where you will never sin again. When you will never utter another false word. When you will never have another moment of doubt. There is coming a day when God alone will you worship without compromise. There is coming a day of everlasting peace. And on that day, hope will be realized. You will know the Lord. And in the interim, God still calls his people to faithfulness. He calls you to do what is right, not to earn your salvation, but because you have been saved. He calls you to work out your own faith with fear and trembling. He calls you to holiness. He calls you to live like the people you one day will be. Hear his call of love. Let us pray. Father God, we, we thank you for the promises that you have made throughout your scripture. Father God, we thank you that there is coming a day of, of forever being yours. That there will never be any 
any error, sin, transgression, not even the hint of desire of temptation to abandon you. Father, we, we thank you that there is coming a day with no more sickness, crying, or mourning, no more pain. And Father, we long for that day. God, we long for the day when we will look upon our Savior, Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain and yet lives and worship Him. Father, we are longing for the day when when we will be Your people and You will be our God. God, we are longing for the day when we will not, not no more need sun in the sky because your glory will so shine throughout the whole of the earth that we will have no need for it anymore. We are longing for the day when our hearts, when who we are, will be faithful, righteous, just, good, all that you are. Father God, forgive us. God, forgive us for our sins. Forgive us for our infidelity towards you. Forgive us for our wanderings and our waywardness of heart. Forgive us, Lord, for for seeing and treating other things as more important than you. God, we thank you for the forgiveness we have in Christ. And, oh, Lord, we pray that you would have mercy upon those who do not know you. Lord God, that you would give them eyes to see and ears to hear. Father God, that they would behold the wonders and the beauties of the Lord Jesus Christ and so worship him. Father God, have mercy and show grace to people who are so undeserving of it. Lord God, do that work which only you can do. And Father, help us, we who are your people, be faithful to do that work which only we are called to do. Lord, have mercy upon us and help us to understand these things. We pray in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.